Okay, so I'm just going to launch in, and then we can just we can just chat um, about this. That's all I'm thinking about doing. I mean, this is literally just a com- whatever conversation we would otherwise have. We'll just have it. You know what I mean? Makes sense. Okay, good. Welcome to the Not Unreasonable podcast, hosted by me, David Wright. This is a show of interviews with people who have something to teach us about managing our businesses and ourselves. There's a lot to learn out there, folks. So let's get to work. This show is brought to you by Altway Insurance, where we are building software and AI to improve education and access to health benefits. We're hiring, we're exploring all kinds of opportunities, and we're always looking for ideas. If you're interested in joining us or learning more, reach out to me anytime on LinkedIn or at david at altway.com. Welcome to a special edition, maybe the first of many of this sort, for the Not Unreasonable podcast. So my guest today is Michael Tanzer, Portfolio Manager at Callaway Capital, and author of a newsletter I read every week called S-T-R-O-T-W. I don't think it's meant to actually spell something as an acronym does, stuff to read over the weekend. This newsletter is pretty old school. It looks to me just an email you literally send to people with a BCC list. Is that right? That's right, yeah. <laughs> and they can, they can sign up by emailing you, and you wanted to give your email out? Sure, it's a MIT at Callaway Cap. Dot com. Pretty cool. Um, okay, so Michael, we've known each other a little while now, and you emailed me to catch up about all things COVID-19, I think, especially the way it impacts the insurance industry. I thought it might be an excuse to experiment a little bit with my own personal educational journey here, because it's something I'm thinking about a lot. Um, I don't know how to think about it yet. I think the world is going to change in some, some ways. Some of them are going to be permanent. Some of them are not. Uh, I, I know I want to figure out for my own personal and professional purposes where the puck is going so I can skate there. Um, but let's just have our conversation. So hit me with a question, Michael. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, sure. So I guess like, you know, in, in podcasting, you're not really supposed to uh, timestamp the interviews. But no, we I'm should. Sure though. Yeah. Be different. I, yeah. I, you know, I think that like, um, so One Sunday morning, favorite. 11 a.m., March 22nd. There's a timestamp. That's right. Um, and, and I think, you know, one of my favorite books about the financial crisis is this book. Um, it's called Diary of a Very Bad Year. It's actually okay. uh, put out by this, this Brooklyn-based uh, literary publisher. And they basically got some uh, portfolio manager at a multi-strategy hedge fund to do a series of interviews over the course of the financial crisis. During the crisis. During the crisis, yeah. Oh, and so uh, it's interesting because the guy is is obviously super smart, um, but you know clearly gets a lot of things not exactly right and some things wrong, and you get that palpable sense of uncertainty and fear yep, of yep. someone who's you know obviously very keyed in. Um, so you know maybe maybe we'll we'll channel a little bit of that to that. Yeah, great. Um, I'm going to write that down. I hadn't heard of that book. Uh, that sounds awesome. That is exactly what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Um, so I guess like before you just like launch into hypotheses of magnitudes or whatever, you know, lines of insurance you think are particularly susceptible to whatever is going to come. I mean, in general, do you have a model of uh, like cycles in the insurance industry that you kind of adhere to or implicitly believe personally? So, I mean, I, one unusual, I think as usual, at least in the, in the sense that I don't see many other people who say these kinds of things, but uh, I believe in the old fashioned price signal. And so I think that 
that to the extent that prices go up, that is a, 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 a um, indicator of surprise. And so you just come back to the insurance industry is a forecasting machine. And to the extent that, that, that the, the prices are going down, it means that people believe that, that everything is good. And when prices go up, they believe everything is bad. And I'm kind of an efficient markets person in the sense that I think that those prices do incorporate all the knowledge of the future. So, you know, under that model, it's when you have an exogenous shock of some sort, something people didn't see coming yeah. from before, and that causes a real problem. And I think that, you know, I recorded a podcast with a guy named Paul Ingray. Uh, I mean, I forget how long ago it was, probably a couple years ago. I, now. I was going to bring up his clock of fear, actually. Yeah. That was, yeah. So it was interesting about that. And then we'll put a link up to that show and, and the clock. Um, the, the, so he recognized patterns. This is in the 70s or 60s even, I think. He recognized patterns in the response to crises. But his model for the, the, the preconditions or conditions of a crisis is just that people are scared. And, and they get scared because they don't recognize the environment anymore. And, once, and the fear in his mind gets manifested in like, people losing their jobs. And so until people are getting fired, nothing changes until people are feeling real personal pain. And, and I think that's just something that is so interesting and different. Um, and we're just going to use kind of like fairly dry academic terms of things like interesting when this is a truly, I think, honestly, sure. terrifying um, yeah. environment we're in right now. I mean, my wife is pregnant. She's due in a couple months. And, um, you know, it's another layer of, of fear. So like from a personal standpoint, it's really um, distressing. And I think that once that happens, you know, it's kind of like now, you know, you're going to have something like something's going to change. Now for the insurance industry generally, I think that I don't think there's going to be much surprise. There's a potential of surprise. There's some, uh, some, some press came out this week on, on governments kind of mulling over the possibility of forcing business insurers to cover business, business interruption claims. Hmm. Uh, and that would be a classic example of a surprise, right? So where the rule of law breaks down and it does happen, right? So the hurricane Katrina post hurricane Katrina, um, a lot of the, um, uh, I think governments, I forget kind of the exact mechanism here, but they forced them to cover flood claims. And so hmm. that was something that was excluded in the policy. And that, you know, that, that I think is underrated in the degree to which it shakes the feeling of, of, of like understanding for like the rule of law. I mean, the institutions of our economic society break down, like literally like the law says this and it's contracts say that, and then we're just going to just wipe that aside and make you do something else. You know, that's what, that's what really screws things up. And that's what really forces people to, to say, I don't understand here what's going on. And then they back off and then the capacity pulls out of the, out of the marketplace to prices go crazy. You have new entrants come in because you know what, what they're, kind of predicated on is that the, the new entrant, they don't know anything more than people who are leaving. What they do have though, is they don't have a legacy of business to protect. And so they can be really, really tough uh, and, and bring in the terms and conditions up uh, on the policies. And as a result, yeah, as long as the rule of law holds again, so there's an assumption, implicit assumption that whatever the original pain was, which is this called degradation of the rule of law, <laughs> or at least yeah. understanding of the law, uh, that will that will restore itself, and then we'll have this we'll have this recovery, which is which is what's happened, right? I mean, I think that whenever you've had some kind of breakdown in in people's feeling of certainty of of how the world works, that does get restored. There's kind of like a natural response from the economy, from the political institutions, from society that just restores order, like. As an example, when prices for insurance go up, people use less of it. And when they use less of it, you know, they wind up having higher deductibles and they wind up self-insuring more. They wind up being more risk averse. Sometimes yeah. it takes a long time for that to kick in. Uh, you know, another example from the Paul Ingray interview where he said, you know, they were raising prices by 100% in like 1981, 1982. And the market didn't actually turn until 1984, 1985. So you had, hmm. you had years, years of, of extraordinary pain before people, and finally light bulbs switched in their heads and they're like, oh, we can't just keep doing this. And then people actually start pulling out. And so I think that 
it, you can be, it takes a lot longer than you think sometimes for people to change their minds, people to change their model for how it works. And, and I feel like I have this conversation right now with my wife and my friends and, you know, people in my neighborhood here where, you know, do, do you really believe it? Like, do you really believe that you have to, you cannot, your kids can't play with each other. You can't go outside. You can't go to the grocery store. You have to wash your hands. Like, you know, I'm not sure it's totally sunk in for everybody. I think there's a minority, but like, you know, you see the, I don't know if you watch CNN, but the kids are partying out in like the, uh, on the, the, whatever that place, St. Something Island in, in Georgia, you know, um, you know, until you see kind of behavior change like that, it's like an analog to the insurance industry. You know, I'm not sure you get real like real change. And so you see signals of like genuine, you know, genuine social change, like people are changing how they live and, and you know, metaphorically how they work in the insurance industry. Like the, the assumptions of the past are no longer valid. That's when, you know, you get something new, you get, you know, and, and an opportunity for those who are moving in. Um, but you get a lot of pain for those who, who want to, who want to try and fix it in place or, or pull out. So, so, you know, when you, when you're thinking about, the current environment and the people you speak to in a, you know, work environment or just industry context generally, much like uh, lots of conversations I'm having with people that work at other investment funds, there's just just pretty widespread recalibration of the possible, yeah, you know, outcomes. Right, starting uh, to happen. Yeah, and so when you think about that piece. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting that you kind of dove directly into this notion of basically, you know, overriding contract law for the good of, I guess, social utility and how that's kind of, you know, maybe I wouldn't call it a black swan event, but maybe the effects of a black swan event. Yeah, um, that, that, so, would, that would obliterate the insurance industry. I mean, yeah. obliterate it. The amount of leverage that exists in an insurer's balance sheet is inconceivable. It's, it's, it's like, you know, if you take like, you think like the average rate on a general liability policy for one of these restaurants or something, and they're spending, yeah. I don't know, what is it? 1500 bucks, something like that. If that, um, and they're exposed for, you know, potentially a million dollars or more. I mean, that, 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 you know, that ratio is very large. And that's like, you know, I think like the, pre, the insurers, they rate their capital on premium. And so you're already sitting there looking at a few orders of magnitude, more exposure on their balance sheet than they're even measuring. I mean, they don't measure yeah. it. No, they don't even count it. Like there's no point. The numbers are too big. It's like trillions and trillions. And like, so as soon as you like flip the switch there and you think like if whatever, like, I don't know what it's going to be, 70% of all restaurants in the United States could go to business, you know, like it's going to be something incredible, like everything incredible, right? Um, that, 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 I mean, it's, it's so, it's so the insurers just, it would wipe out every single insurance company. So it's almost like, it's like, uh, they can't do it. They just can't do it. It's too big. It's too big. Like insurers just be like, you know, here's, you know, you don't even have to have a sophisticated lobbyist. You just like, here, here's a little post-it note. Let me just write a few numbers down for you. you tell me how this is going to work. It ain't going to work. Yeah. It's just too big. So like, we're protected in a sense there by how bad it would be. It's just too simple. You know? Yeah. I wonder, you know, when you talk about the, when people are discussing the government response right now from an economics perspective, um, you talk about fiscal stimulus in terms of emailing or, you know, sending people checks in the mail or, you know, corporate, you know, injections of cash, like they're discussing with the airline industry. And, and I really wonder how it's going to work for the small business segment, you know, 80% of restaurants plus in the United States, 
Um, you know, you could you could use the insurance industry as a bailout mechanism theoretically, right? If they're well, you, need, you just yeah. need. I just feel like you need too much money. You know, yeah. there's just like there's not that kind of money. Like you, you can't replace the, the the scale of. I mean, we're even talking about GDP right now, right? I think we're yeah. moving into the wealth conversation. So it's like stock of capital, it's not flow. So the flows are fucked. We know that. If you know, but I guess there goes the G rating. But um, but the stock. We're now we're talking about like credit credit risk. So now you're saying like, so what happens if you have a balance sheet of a bank exposed to so many loans? I mean, in restaurants, we never were a favorite place to lend money for banks, but I think other industry, other, other businesses may be. And so, you know, once you destroy that much capital, I, I just don't know that there really is a pot of money big enough to fill that. I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe you have a holiday on, on interest payments or something. And, you know, maybe that's something that can, you know, preventing people from going to default maybe as a way of doing that and hoping that the rebound happens. But I don't know, what, what do you think? I mean, that, it seems to me that, that there's a huge systemic risk possibility here of a loss of confidence. People can pay anything. I think that the, um, that is not, I think in the consensus view, um, if you want to maybe draw a, an analogy to the financial crisis in terms of the, uh, I guess you could call the amount of psychological fear people factoring into uh, their view of the world. I mean, if you go back to post Lehman, the immediate aftermath was that uh, the money market funds broke the buck. There were daily rumors about, you know, if Bank of America was solvent, uh, if Morgan Stanley was solvent, like you're saying, investment professionals were thinking about, you know, the viability of their career. Um, you didn't know if your prime broker would be able to keep your financing lines in place or even have your, you know, cash in the right bank. I know, I personally know investment professionals that were moving bank deposits from Citigroup to Bank of America to get below the FDIC deposit insurance limit. Mm. And there's not that kind of worry that the banks are going to be insolvent. Mm. I, I would say, firstly, because, you know, a, a number of things have kind of evolved in the credit market since. Some have been a function of uh, natural market responses. Others have been responses to some of the regulations that were put in place after the financial crisis. Um, and then just in general, if you just look at, very simple leverage ratios. So, you know, assets to, to equity, um, the banks are just significantly less levered now. So mm -hmm. I don't think there's that systemic fear in the investment community today of, you know, the idea that Citigroup would be nationalized and, you know, what are the implications of that? Or if they're not nationalized, what are the implications of that? Mm -hmm. I don't think that's in the, in the, um, in the overton window of uh, of stuff that people are talking about, but what about insolvencies yeah. though? Like for for you know for regular businesses, because I, I gotta think that right. I mean, one of the one of the one of the facts forecasts that that has really hit me over the head in the last ten days is just how long this could last. So we have this social distancing, don't go out. Uh, you know, there's there's Schools are closed. 
private schools, universities. Or, I mean, like, uh, I mean, sur surely many of these institutions, organizations have have loans that they're just going to not pay back, right? I mean, I guess you know, the hard assets are still there, but now we're talking about like a you know potentially a downward spiral, right? Of who's going to buy that? And you know, there's only so many distressed buyers. What, what yeah, I think. That? I mean, in general, the way I think about credit cycles is that this one this one's very different um, most credit cycles are driven by an oversupply of capital over time leading to a misallocation of resources and then that misallocation of resources ends with a supply shock leading to an increase in defaults and you know basically monetary tightening mm. um, so Fed raises interest rates at the end of the cycle. Uh, losses occur because the misallocation of resources don't earn their required rate of return based on the cost of capital, borrowing, and equity, et cetera. Defaults tick up. Uh, lots of things go bankrupt. And, you know, we kind of start. And then Fed drops interest rates, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, you know, the financial crisis is an example of that, right? So you just... Uh, had interest rates very low for a very long time. There's large misallocation of resources into housing, uh, into stuff that was put on banks' balance sheets. And then after that all unfolded, you had a monetary response to that crisis, right? It was, it was a monetary response to a systemic banking crisis. And if you think about it, right, the only way this crisis could have happened given the Fed's knee jerk responses to weaknesses in the system since is kind of the way it happened which is this you know very black swan-esque uh exogenous demand shock yeah and so what we're dealing with now is kind of that i wouldn't say in reverse but it's sort of like the economy is stopped you're going to see you know a sharp contraction in gdp and then a significant rise in unemployment and defaults um but it seems at least for the moment that uh the uncertainty is based on how long this is going to last and you know the duration of the shutdown the you know threat of double dips and then this idea that there will be these kind of blow up knock-on effects so you know, to give an example, one thing people are talking about is that comparing this to the financial crisis in terms of these blow-on, knock-on effects that have never happened before, you know, in the mortgage-backed security market, no one had ever modeled, you know, a countrywide, uh, hyper-correlated, you know, simultaneous decrease in housing prices. Uh, and the effects to all those mortgage-backed securities and related products, right? The analogy here is that in the crude oil market, um, systemic demand shocks have been of the magnitude of three to five million barrels. If you do some kind of back-of-the-envelope math on contraction in miles driven, you know, you could have a contraction in demand of three to four times that three to five million barrel. Yeah. And so, you know, the way that plays out is that, you know, storage fills up after the curve is in contango and then oil is just 
you know, dumped on the market, the price contracts significantly and that, you know, every shale producer in the U.S. goes bankrupt and that has systemic kind of implications for the rest of, you know, high yield credit and high yield loan markets. And that, that feels pretty plausible to me. I don't know if you're, what's your kind of assessment of that story. Yeah. I mean, so this is kind of something that seems plausible and you could follow the storage data, but, you know, maybe there are four or five other things like that, that we just, we were not, or at least for me, it's just not on my radar and I don't understand. And so yeah, the longer we stay in this kind of depressed state, the higher the chance that these things play out. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the difference between kind of like my model, if I could be more kind of a little bit more succinct about it on, on insurance shocks is that they're primarily exogenous shocks. I think that, and you're, I think your credit model is an endogenous model, right? So you have within the system, you're, you're kind of playing and playing and playing. You start messing up more and more and more, and then eventually get, you know, your bad behavior catches up with you with those insurance. I think that's a lot less common. I think you need, and this is probably, I don't know. I don't think this is the, the majority view in insurance. I think people probably like the idea of, of your model for insurance as well. Although I just don't quite buy it. Um, I think that it's, it's only because I've just seen so much of everybody else is an idiot kind of behavior. And I think that really plays into that bias of, you know, it's easy to blame the idiots um, who, who, right. Who, who then you're causing the crisis for everybody else. And there is a certain kind of like, everybody does have to move in the same direction in order for this, you know, weird kind of like, collusion to work and you have when you have forecasting based industries uh, if somebody yeah. messes up the forecast then then you know they can they can put on a lot of business uh at underpriced numbers but when i look at history you know i see i see actually the real bad ones happening when something crazy happens you know asbestos yeah. right or you know the, the the institution of strict liability the real enforcement of that in the 70s um you know inflation as well and then you have 9-11 you have asbestos kind of reboot around 2000 which is underappreciated which happened around then too this big insurance hard market that happened then um and, and you have some kind of systemic your game playing happening there too but it wasn't anything anything like the asbestos crisis which is so you think maybe this now this is kind of an insurance style um, recession, if you can call a hard market a recession in insurance business, uh, that happened to everybody because you have this kind of this meteor hitting us from outer space. Uh, and <laughs> now what happens? If, everywhere I read is just like, this is so different. This is so different. This is so different. This is kind of breaking the model for, for, uh, for a financial, for sorry, an economic crisis. Yeah, so, so, you know, maybe this is a point of differentiation. So, um, and correct me if I'm, I'm wrong. Um, so my understanding that a lot of like the uh, life oriented products over the last, you know, we've discussed this before, but you know, uh, in the late nineties, early oddies, you know, people were uh, modeling mortality that turned out to be, uh, I guess, different. And um, uh, a lot of uh, multi-line uh, life and health insurance companies, uh, we're looking to divest their large books of annuity products and you know stuff like that. So that seems like you know a, a more endogenously driven. Oh, that this sub product in the industry is is just the returns based on the capitalization today are just unattractive. So either you have to you know take a risk and recap that business or exit that business. And then there's stuff like asbestos where 
you know, th there's a contagion effect. So there's just mass pain and that causes a hard market across. And so these, these pricing dynamics for policies, there's a contagion or correlation effect. I, um, so I yeah. think what happens when you have kind of like this disagreement, you know, the herd mentality problem, Yeah. you know, what, when everybody the herd sort of directing itself over the cliff, right, is this kind of the problem is sort of the way of thinking about this, this phenomenon. And I think that you still have a bunch of people opting out and smart people saying, you know what, you guys are idiots. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to get out of this business. I'm going to exit. And a lot of organizations do that. The biggest ones tend to not because they sort of have, they're all indexes. Yeah. Right. Um, but I think there's enough smart money that sits on the sidelines waiting for things to change. And to me, that that's, that's a real cushion, right? That's, that's the net that's getting built underneath the trapeze artist. And, but when you have an exogenous shock, you don't have that because nobody saw it coming. Maybe it gets the weirdos and the cranks or something like that, but they don't have any money. They don't have any influence. Right. Uh, and there, and you know, it's the stop clock, you know, right, right. Twice a day. I think that there's, there's, un, it's indistinguishable from that. You know, your, your kind of perpetual bears are always going to be there. Um, but the real, the real shock, the one that it, maybe this is a magnitude of response definition problem here where it's like, well, I'm thinking a hard market. I'm thinking one that's like, you know, for real. Right. So yeah. what, what happened after, even after hurricane Katrina, which was pretty surprising, it didn't affect the lines of business that were outside of the domain that got shocked. So you have property, coastal property insurance, bad, bad couple of years for them, for people buying that insurance, great couple of years, people writing it, but the other lines of business eh, didn't even notice it, shrugged it off. And I think that that to me is a, is a localized shock. And that's not something that's going to, that's worth, you know, putting in the model. Um, I think that, you know, I think that, um, you, you know, because the enough smart money will exit when they feel like things are doing stupid things, the market's doing stupid things, they're just waiting to come back. Yeah. And, and that's, I think that's much more the pattern we've seen over the last 15 years in the insurance business where you have people kind of always coming in and out, always waiting for, waiting for the next, waiting for the next turn because the, the you know, there's, I've, I've noticed over the last few years, many special specialty insurers who, who are super smart, who are super conservative, who, you know, I don't know how people are making money here. And so they, you know, they hired a division of like, you know, just build a base of premium. It doesn't perform that well, but that's okay. We got our toe in the water. We're waiting for the, waiting for the turn as what their, what their strategy basically is and has been for, you know, a generation and it didn't come. And then, yeah. and then eventually they just get, they get kind of bored and they just close down or losing a little amounts of money for their you know, size of organization. And they just close down those little divisions. They'll start it up again in a heartbeat. Right. Uh, yeah. Because, because they have this kind of, you know, the, the marketplace is just generating this diversity of opinion because it's a known unknown, right? It's like, I know that the price, we don't know what the price is, but I know that that's a problem that I'm trying to solve of like, how do you rate the price and what are the, you know, if I look back cast over history, you know, I have this sort of bunch of examples and anything like that happens, I'm ready for it. But it's like the meteor from outer space thing is the one that nobody's really ready for. And you can't, there's no way, there's no way to do it. There's just no way to do it. Um, no way to, you know, because at that point, it's like, it's very easy to just sort of, you know, be terrified of everything. And, the, yeah. and then, and you will do nothing. And that's just, you know, you have to, you have to participate in the marketplace. You have to choose somewhere to be. And you know, once you get to the real fantastical kind of, you know, stuff like this, like, you know, if you had, we talked about this six months ago, nobody, maybe you have people in an insurance company that would have talked about this problem. Um, but nobody would have said, oh, wow. You know, that's something we should really be worried about. Um, you know, maybe, maybe even, maybe even they were wrong anyway. Maybe the insurers don't have anything to be worried about, which I, th I think is probably the case. Like, I think that we're talking about something like a, um, you know, a big, 
uh, event cancellation insurance, uh, you know, massive, massive problem there, but that's, that, that marketplace is tiny, you know, it's, yeah. you know, it's like a sub $10 billion event for the insurance industry, which is, you know, it's no big deal at all. It's nothing. It's nothing. And, and, and so our, our most, you know, business interruption insurance policy is written with, you know, basically, uh, exemptions for pandemic exclusion. Yeah. Well, like they're, they're designed, they're, they're designed to be property covers. Yeah. So it's like, if your building burns down, is like the canonical original example, then we're going to pay for, you know, pay for your inventory and pay for your lost revenue for a period of time. Or if you get hit by a hurricane or earthquake, that kind of thing, you know, if, if your employees all get sick or if the government tells you to shut down, that's just, it's not contemplated. It's, it, it's not even like a, it's not even, it's not even in the insurance kind of like, like vocabulary, that kind of thing. I guess yeah. it's tech, it's not property. It's not liability, right? It's, it's not like some, somebody harmed you. It's not part of the tort system, right? The mechanism for, for, for pain here. And so there's no, there's just, there's no like, there's no category of coverage. There's no insurance industry that's designed to do this. Like it falls into the catastrophe realm because you have this kind of contagion effect, right? In the kind of general sense of the word, um, or this, you know, one cause hits many different coverages, but no, no catastrophe policy is going to ever include pandemic because um, they're just, they don't have any way of modeling it. And that's partly a hunch, partly based on some press I've read, partly based on some conversations I've had in the industry. Um, you know, I, I haven't done a thorough kind of review of any of this, but you know, the absence of conversation about it within the insurance world is pretty indicative. You know, if this was mm. anywhere in any business interruption ISO policy, the insurance industry would be wiped out and they're not. So, so where does the, yeah, so where does the, you know, say there's a situation or a scenario that you alluded to earlier where, you know, contract law is broken based on government intervention, what policies would be triggered, I guess, by that? It, it would probably be the general liability um, or package policy for a, for a small business. Um, anything with it's business interruption is the, yeah. is the, you know, is the coverage that it would hit. And so that, like I said, tends to be on a property policy or a blended policy. You know, there's, there is some like liability based business interruption, like contingent business interruption. That's pretty rare and pushed yeah. back on pretty hard uh, by, by a lot of insurers. Some, some industries will have it, you know, typical case there is like a, an oil refinery or something. Right. So, you know, if, if for whatever reason, your refinery blows up, then the gas distributors or whatever it's going to be, you know, they, they have a big problem. Um, but this corner little, not, not systemically important part of the, uh, of the business. So what you're saying basically is that, you know, if the industry will take material losses, it would just be in this way that would be, you know, kind of unprecedented uh, versus, oh, there, there are these specific pockets of the industry, which would be, I guess, analogous to the, you know, Katrina example with coastal flood. Yeah, it would. The, the one like one part, it, you know, the one place that is a little bit of a wild card is the health insurance business, yeah. which, um, which is the business that I'm in now. And, you know, the health insurance industry is kind of weird because it's not really insurance. A lot of it, you know, kind of major medical policies is much more of a prepaid medical plan. Um, and it's not like it presents a, you know, like for the magnitude of fear, it's not like it's like really expensive. Like you'll go in the hospital for a couple of weeks and then you'll, you'll kind of recover or not. Right. And, 
that's only two weeks in the hospital, right? The, the really expensive medical uh, medical insurance claims are like the hemophiliacs, right? The, the, yeah. like they survive for a long time with requiring humongous amounts of expensive care. And so, you know, here you don't necessarily, I mean, it's very expensive, of course, to uh, go get admitted to the hospital, whether you know it or not. I mean, insurance companies paying piles of money for that. Um, but, you know, to me, it's, uh, you know, I haven't, I haven't really considered the calculations on it, but it's going to be a bad year for those organizations, I think. Mm. Um, but I haven't seen a lot of evidence of it being like a calamitous year mm. for them. Uh, and in any case, I think that there's, you know, there's a weird interaction with the government here where I don't know what they're going to wind up, the government's going to wind up paying for. Mm. Um, uh, you know, especially since, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I, it's still pretty early, I think, to, to figure out, you know, if you have like, if you're going to quarantine, uh, you know, who, who kind of pays for that, right? If you're, if you're sort of a government imposed quarantine, you know, it seems to me that I think there's, you know, I don't know enough about it yet. I, I doesn't, doesn't seem to me like it's going to be a massive um, problem for, uh, you know, the under, the uninsured, right. Yeah. You know, that's going to be picked up by the hospital systems and the government because they, you know, they can't, they can't, um, no insurance company is going to pay for yeah. that. So um, it's hard to see the mechanism for, for, you know, big changes to the health insurance industry here. And, and, you know, if you're a, if you're a, business just you know either a large corporation or a small business and your policy is coming up for a renewal you know at the end of march 2020 it has you know are you good has the pricing inflected already or it's like you know what what do you do i haven't seen it um yeah. i haven't seen it you know i the you know let's say like i, I haven't been really keeping up daily so this yeah. is right and i mean as you know as we all know this is a every day is different kind of thing so you know business just doesn't move that fast uh, right now there's a lot of i think i think a lot of companies are just trying to delay uh delay stuff <laughs> so they yeah you know let's just wait and learn more about what's going on um gathering some information there's no precedent for it um so i don't know that you know, a lot of the, you know, the insurance industry itself is going to be in trouble from on the revenue side, right? So if you have a huge economic collapse, yeah, you know, that is still the 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 drivers for all the insurance premium calculations are revenues yeah. or employees in place, right? For workers' comp or miles driven, or sorry, not miles driven, but vehicles vehicles enforced, but miles driven is kind of the implicit one there. So I think you're going to wind up seeing a gigantic. Uh, reduction in revenue for the insurance mm. industry, but a commensurate reduction in exposure. And there's going to be some, you know, messiness in that relationship between exposure and, and the rating basis for the, for the insurance policies. Um, that, you know, that to and, me is and, why the stocks you know, are down. And potentially an offset for the, you know, if miles driven is down substantially, your policies in force, the loss ratios are likely to be much lower. Right? Well, yeah. So I've seen it go both ways. Um, yeah. I've seen, I've seen like, uh, you know, as you, ha as you have this measurement, this proxy for exposure, right? So for like miles driven, let's say, or it's going to be revenues for a, for a small business or whatever it is. And I think that that tends to get calibrated and work fairly well within kind of the known history, right? Mm. Uh, it's not a true measure of exposure because you have all these other, you know, exogenous effects, right? So like, 
you know, your miles driven, right? And if you were the, if you were like a truck driver right now, driving thousands and thousands and thousands of miles, you'd probably be okay. Cause you're the only one, <laughs> yeah. whatever it is. Right. And so, you, you know, whenever you kind of head out into the tail of the distribution here uh, of the rating basis, you just don't know what you're going to see. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, financial crisis presented another example of this where, you know, I've seen it. I've seen companies be surprised at how low their loss ratio is. And I've seen companies be surprised at how high it was And the yeah. same within this, you know, it's only because it's just hard to predict. I don't, I don't know whether it's this, you know, the error is symmetric or not. I'm not sure, but it's, it's, it's hard to tell. And, and what about, um, how, how does the brokerage industry respond? You know, obviously my dog decided to butt in on the uh, question. Didn't like the brokers. <laughs> not alone. But, but, you know, obviously churn goes up because unfortunately you're, you know, some of your customers are, are, you know, filing for insolvency. Yeah. But then, but how does the mechanism work in terms of, you know, the prices inflect? Do, do their, do their profit margins go up because of the price volatility or because prices are rising? Like, how does that? Um, if they, so the, you know, there's two, there's two kind of important, um, uh, measures here for the business at a broker. You have deal count, you have deal size. Right. I mean, if you're, if your deal count goes down, that's just, that's bad because now you're overstaffed. Mm-hmm. Um, and if your deal size goes down, that's bad too. Um, but it kind of a little bit of a different kind of bad. Uh, the way that their margins expand is they do the same work and they get more money. And that usually happens when you have a price inflection in the marketplace. And then just like, they're just same guys doing the same work gals. And, and now the prices have all gone 15%. Boom. Yeah. You're, you're just, you just got to raise. And um, it's a kind of an almost inflationary sort of thing. Yeah. And, you know, here you're going to see a deflationary shock where you'll, you know, you reduce these size and deal count. So their margins are going to have a, they're going to, they're going to collapse. Um, and the problem with the, the, you know, the deflationary price sense. So if their client count doesn't go down, um, that means that they can't reduce staff. And so their, you know, their margins are going to collapse all the more because you still have, you know, the same work, less money. Um, and let's say if your if your deal count and your deal size go down, but the pricing goes up, the pricing acts as an offset to the the former two. So the former two work against you because you have negative operating leverage, like you're saying, you know. So you know you just have staff and costs. Uh, but the question is like whether that price inflection offsets the the former. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think a price you know, the price and the deal size is being basically you know identical right so the like uh, okay. price goes up that causes the deal size to to, to go up because uh, the brokerage you know the, the the intermediation there is like your brokerage percentage and that yeah uh, that's also going to change yeah so yeah so, so if you, prices so, fly up then then they're a good day but yeah so so net net on those two you think the net result is 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 negative it's yeah different. down down yeah. down arrow on both i think deal size goes down because companies go bankrupt and i think uh, sorry, deal count goes down because going to go bankrupt and deal size goes down just because you just have less economic activity. Mm. Yeah, so you'll see layoffs and then, but at the same time you'll see, it will be, I suspect, um, uh, you know, more, more, you know, the margins will, the, the, you know, the kind of the, the margins after the fact are still going to be worse. So, so one thing I've observed in the, in the brokerage industry is, um, you have the, the success over the last 20 years by uh, someone like Brown and Brown, um, you know, has been noticed and uh, replicated with lots of uh, balance sheet leverage by, you know, I think six or seven different private equity funds. Mm. 
Um, and, uh, you know, the result of that has been more competition for deals to, you know, roll these guys up. Um, probably more competition on, on pricing. Um, do you think this, you know, catalyzes uh, a reversal of all that if, you know, one or, or one or two of these guys go bankrupt? Well, um, lever- leverage introduces fragility. I mean, I think that, yeah. um, I think it's important to say too, that this is all really um, contingent on, you know, kind of what the full year GDP level looks like. Because if you have yeah. the sharp drop and you have the sharp increase at the end of the V recovery, that happens pretty quick, which is, I mean, as far as I can tell, pretty plausible because once people just start going back to work, I mean, I mean, I'm not sure what it looks like exactly. You know, Tyler Cowen talks about the destruction of intangible capital. And so to me, the, the, um, uh, the, what that really means is that's just like the quality of the businesses that come up in Q4 or less than the quality of this, yeah. you know, the restaurant food won't be as good. Um, you know, there's going to be other kind of a little bit less trivial uh, consequences than that, but um, I still not sure. I think that kind of reduces, let's say, consumer surplus or something, right? But I don't think that necessarily reduces a lot of economic activity. So I think that a V-shaped recovery is feels pretty plausible. If that happens, then you know you kind of have this dip and up and again, and then you know feels to me like it probably might not matter too much. Which is maybe that's what the credit markets are pricing in right now, right? They're just thinking they're saying, well, with a strong V recovery, then there is no credit, uh, you know, credit crisis, and we're probably okay. Or am I breaking up? You hear me? Okay? Okay. No, you you sound okay. I mean, well, I'll you know I'll tell you from from my vantage point. Um, the uh, typically in those private equity structures um, for the large brokerage rollups, they were financed uh, like a lot of private equity buyouts with like a first lien, second lien structure, and the first lien you know say creates the company for you know five to six times EBITDA, the second lien creates it for you know, nine to 10 times EBITDA with uh, the implication of the equity check, you know, valuing the total business at, you know, say 12 to 14. Right. And uh, so it's, it's very difficult to um, under a normal distribution of contraction and economic activities to see that first lane bond being impaired, uh, whether under a loan, but today those, those are trading at, you know, let's say in the eighties. Um, so, you know, whether that's because of just wholesale credit liquidation, which um, it hasn't been as bad as the 08 crisis at all in, mm-hmm. in any respect. But, uh, you know, there is some uncertainty being priced in. Yeah, that, that to me is an interesting indicator. Um, and it may be, you know, the, the kind of whatever the credits, I mean, I'm not sure what the right comparative indicator is between the the credit market and the equity market, but to me, like that might be an interesting proxy for how long the market thinks this crisis is going to last. Because if the crisis is short, you can still see equity returns be bad, but bond returns be okay. Right. But the crisis is long. And then I think the, the second shoot of drop is the, you know, the credit just freaks out. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, uh, if, you look at this chart of uh, uh, between U.S., EU, and emerging market sovereigns. What what you see is this this you know kind of correlated lines going over time, and uh, uh, you know this is measured in 
yield spread to treasuries. So at the peak of the crisis uh, in 08, the, in U.S. high yield, there was like you know, 2,000 basis points of yield spread on, on U.S. high yield. And today we're at, we're at 800. So you know, that's, that's far from a perfect and all-encompassing indication, but it, it shows you at least where we are today. Hmm. And so uh, interpret that a bit more for me. So that, that, that spread drop, um, what does it mean? Um, yeah, so let, let's say uh, in a quote-unquote normal environment, high yield trades at like uh, you know, four of the 500 basis points above treasuries. Um, in the last few years, uh, those spreads have been very, very tight, uh, mm. going to, let's say, you know, 200 basis points above treasuries. Um, if we're, if we're looking at, you know, treasuries is basically like, let's say the, the 10 years, you know, one to 4% over this, over the last, uh, you know, 10, 15 years. Um, that's at the yield to worst at the high end of yeah, 24% IRRs on investing in high yield credit at the, the height of the crisis at the, uh, at the, at the tights, which is to say like, you know, midway through last year, um, you're getting paid like four or 5% a year to take that risk. Mm. And today we're kind of like, you know, nine to 10% a year. Uh, actually, I, I maybe misunderstood your yeah. point there. I thought you were, talking about the difference between the international spreads and the domestic spreads. Um, uh, I only meant to say that, you know, they're vastly all correlated. Yeah. Okay. And that, that hasn't changed. Not really. Um, I mean, you, you see little quirky stuff going on. Uh, for example, EM sovereign credit is kind of at the same yield spread where it was in 2008 today. Uh, and you know there are lots of different hypotheses on why that is in terms of the increase in you know uh, market capitalization and you know various fund flow things. But by and large, you know they're 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 very correlated. How about term spreads? Like how about like any what about forecasts for the future? One of the things I'm just fascinated by here is like what does the future look like? And any any kind of like any market prices that can predict the future for us here, like you know the five, ten year, thirty year, that kind of thing. I don't know. I mean, I, I tried to personally take it the other way. I, I look at um, when there's stuff in the market that, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, I look at that as kind of like, okay, you know, we've reached a real point of either fear driven or, you know, mechanistically driven liquidation. Mm, right. um, I mean, one, one reason why I'm, you know, kind of interested in what's going on in insurance is that, uh, for example, you could look today at, you know, Arch Capital preferreds are trading at a meaningful discount from par. And, uh, you know, that tells me that there's market signal pricing that tells you that there is a reasonable chance that there could be very deep distress in the industry. Yeah. Well, um, what's funny about that company in particular is the mortgage uh, portfolio that they have. And so I wonder if there's a housing market kind of disturbance there potentially. Hmm. I mean, in, in general, it seems I'm, I guess I'm more optimistic on the asset side of the balance sheet for these companies yeah. with some exceptions. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I guess, you know, uh, a lot of them had 
kind of negative experiences during the financial crisis and having not necessarily permanent impairment of capital, but more just, you know, oh, I thought, you know, we could get our money out of this thing when, you know, times were rough and now you're telling me I can't, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think that uh, one, one part of the insurance industry that I think that will not change here is I think that kind of how, you know, how the insurance companies will, will, uh, uh respond, <laughs> which is to say they're going to exclude it. And I think yeah. that, you know, the, the classic, the classic pattern of behavior is we, we won't, we won't touch, uh, this or maybe any future pandemics for a period of time. And I think you're going to wind mm-hmm. up with probably some kind of government issued, you know, like TRIA, this terrorism risk insurance act after yeah. 2001. And I think that pandemics are just going to be hands off for, for insurance companies for uh, a while. Um, you know, this looks to me like a once in a hundred year kind of event, right? This sort of thing. Um, and, but, and maybe society but, will self-correct. But, but if I'm, you know, if I'm a, either a small business or a, a corporation with very direct exposure to the, the contraction of economic activity. So restaurants, you know, airlines, um, you know, casinos, etc. Do I, at the encouragement of my lawyers, just file a claim as basically a call option at this point? Uh, probably, uh, probably. Yeah. And then, you know, the insurers will just kind of as a, as kind of a matter of course, just deny it. You know, I think there's going to be a little bit of legal theater that goes on with that, yeah. which doesn't, you know, wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. Yeah. And, you know, there's going to be lawsuits that will hit, you know, the court system. But to me, it's all pretty, like pretty straight up and down uh, stuff, unless the government puts some legislation through that, that blows everything up. But, you know, you so if you, if you're a balance sheet provider, do you provision for losses at this point? You know, if those claims come in or is it just kind of, no way, but I don't think you do. I don't think you can. And I think that even, you know, there's this funny kind of like dance that happens on the claim side where they don't often want to, because then that's like a pre-admission of, of, you know, guilt. Yeah. Yeah. They're saying, well, you know, you put the reserves up. That means you must think this claim is valid. And they're like, Hmm. well, different department. And like, nah, it doesn't work. So I think that they, you know, they got to hold the line on that because, you know, if that dam breaks, it's just, it's over for everybody. Yeah. So I guess like, you know, what you're saying is basically uh, net net, you know, you're saying, uh, you know, small stuff like event interruption insurance and that, you know, we shouldn't. And then the general just economic effects of lots of your customers are basically going bankrupt. That Like that's the real problem, I guess. Not that there should be these ballooning liabilities, except in this, you know, uh, tail kind of event where uh the government steps in yeah this is a this is not an insurance crisis this is like a an incredible real shock to the economy that that will have implications for insurance like it does for many other businesses um but but not anything beyond you know beyond that and i think the credit markets are the ones that that to me is the the thing that could really make this thing a whole another level if you know so asset side impairment basically yeah, I think that, yeah, that's right. So the asset side impairment for, for the insurers and then also the kind of the consequences for, you know, the for, yeah, for the real economy. And I think that, you know, it's like the employees of the insurers. You know, you hear all kinds of stories where people, you know, like friends of friends who own businesses and they don't know what they're going to do, right? I mean, I think that you know, a, lot of, a lot of people are going to have a real problem on their hands 
the longer that lasts, um, you know, the compound, you know, it's going to be a compounded effect. And, 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 you know, if you were starting a insurance business, say where is there something, you know, there's clearly a going to be a dislocation in this market for the next three or four years. And like I could earn excess returns. Is there, is there something kind of maybe obvious or not so obvious? I don't see it yet. I don't yeah. see it yet. It's one of the things that I want to, I'm studying pretty carefully right now myself for the next, hopefully a couple of weeks, maybe longer um, that uh, folks can subscribe to the show and follow me along with me if they'd like. Um, but that is what, that is the main thing I'm trying to figure out. And, and that would be, and you're, what you're watching aside from, you know, people just literally getting fired and losing their jobs is, is the price signal that you, no, yeah, price signal, which is the availability capacity. So it's going to be yeah. you know, what I want to be doing for the next little while is talking to people in the business and you know, on the front lines of a lot of these different lines of insurance business and seeing whether they're sensing any kind of unusual distress. And I, I, I don't have, I don't have a way of predicting that, anticipating that. I don't see it myself, like just reasoning through it. Um, yeah. It doesn't seem like it's going to show up, but I feel like, um, I'm pretty humble about what I think I know about that right now. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting because I don't know, a lot of financial market data is, is, um, is available to all or all qualified, uh, by being able to afford a Bloomberg or something. Right. Um, it's just like, you know, where you choose to put your attention, I suppose. Uh, but, but, you know, with this, it's a little, both the, the, the pricing and these kind of, let's call them informal pricing signals. Uh, the data is just a lot less transparent. Yes, uh, it is. Yeah. The data is not very good and yeah. it takes a little while for it to emerge. I think that, um, yeah, I think uh, it, it, that's why you got to talk to people, right? Yeah. Because, because that, that, and you'll, I mean, you'll see there's enough earnings releases and stuff that, that companies, if they're pulling out of something. So, yeah. if, you know, if the, if the insurance company votes with its wallet and says, we're pulling out of this business or that, and we're going to issue, like we're going to issue kind of earnings releases, you know, kind of like, you know, we're going to reduce our forecast for premium written. Um, that kind of thing is, will hit the financial markets. So all these big insurers are, you know, they're, they're, they're probably traded. And so they make decisions about it. They'll know. Um, to me, it's like the more interesting question is, what about the world will be different? And I think that, you know, there's a few things that I, I feel pretty confident in. I think there's going to be uh, more remote work. I think there's going to be uh, a lot, and a lot of insurance is done face-to-face, -face, which is interesting and maybe change the kind of company that's going to be successful in the future. Um, and, and I think that you're going to see uh, a different kind of, I think different behavior. I think that this will, I think this is, could scar this generation a little bit. And um, I mean, our generation, Michael, I think that, you know, we might make different decisions about how we live our lives in the future, depending on how long this lasts and how bad this is going to get, because we're still at the beginning, right? I mean, if, you know, if like 1% or 2% of the population dies as a result of this, like, man, that's, that's like people, you yeah. know, man, right? Yeah. So, and that, you know, I think that it'll definitely, the politics will change. I think that, you know, I think that um, there's a lot of stuff that could, that could be different about the world in 2021. And, uh, and I, I don't know them yet. Um, I'm trying to figure them out and you know, they, they will have an impact that we will not, we will not expect on all businesses. And I think including insurance. Yeah. Stay tuned. Yeah.
I think that is that a good is that a good point to wrap up on? I think maybe it is. Yeah, (laughs) dark, but it's dark right now. I mean, I think that you know, we would be positive, a little bit positive. I think that ultimately, you know, I am personally trying to remain positive about it. You know, I've you know, the personal situation is difficult, like it is for many people. Um, But I think that they're, you know, I believe in, I believe in our ability to figure something out, uh, you know, deeply. But we just got to see what that's going to be. Well, you know, that, that chart that I, that I alluded to before with the high-yield credit spreads. So if you look at, there's no time in history that uh, if you start at a level of over 800 basis points on a forward two-year looking basis, you've ever lost money. Right. Amazing. So, you know, we're getting there. To buy long-term <laughs> credit. We're buy, yeah, that's, yeah, there we go. There's a money-making uh, suggestion. Right. I mean, yeah, don't hold me to that. <laughs> no, yeah, no, I mean, no, we, we'll put a link up to a chart. <laughs> okay, thanks a lot, Michael. Appreciate uh, you getting together with me on this, and we'll put a link up to this um, uh, that you can share maybe, or, you know, we'll, we'll talk to you later. Thanks so much, Dave. See ya.